Well, good morning to you. Afternoon, shoot, I do that every once in a while. Good afternoon, and um, uh, I am so happy to be here with you, church family, today. Um, I'm going to say just kind of two brief uh, heads up things before we uh, kind of turn toward God's word here. One, and they're both related to ways that uh, ways that that we're building to help you take a step forward in discipleship in a specific way in this upcoming season. Uh, one of those is the new women's Bible study, which will be beginning on Tuesday. Uh, I've mentioned before, Laura Van Heist is going to be leading this. I have attended Bible studies that or a Bible study that she's led before, and she does a great job. And so, women of Redeemer, I would love to warmly commend to you this opportunity to participate in this Bible study in the book of James, which will be here on Tuesday mornings or at her house on Tuesday evenings. And it is, as of today, still not too late to sign up for that, and I would love to commend that to you. You can um, check the website or, um, or check the email that will come out tomorrow for a little more information about that. The other thing that I just kind of want to mention is I know that so many of us have observed things going on in Afghanistan and our hearts break and we say, I wish I could do something. Um, And obviously we cannot fix by ourselves in our own strength uh, a situation of grief for thousands of people. Uh, But there will be uh, some immigrants coming with special visas because of their work with the United States military. There will be some immigrants coming to the city of Aurora within the next couple of months. And we're running a special training course called Welcoming the Stranger in partnership with our friends World Relief. And if you would like to be equipped to love and serve and welcome uh, these neighbors who are moving from Afghanistan to Aurora, uh, we'd love to invite you to sign up for that course uh, and get involved in that. Um, it's not just about uh, people moving here from Afghanistan, but that's a situation that has obviously captured so many of our hearts. Okay, at this time, I want to ask you all to turn with me, if you would, to First uh, Thessalonians chapter 5. We are returning to our sermon series in the book of First Thessalonians today. And today, uh, we are talking about a... A topic of leadership in the church. I thank God for the leaders that we have here in this church family, in this congregation. Moms and dads who lead wisely in their homes. Children's ministry teachers. Team leaders. Youth leaders. Small group leaders for men's and women's Fellowship groups for community groups, deacons, elders, and others. I thank God for the leaders that we have here in this congregation. But before we actually read our passage of scripture for today, which talks about leadership in the church, I want to pause and I want to take a minute together to recognize This is a really challenging topic for us these days, isn't it? The issue of leadership, and maybe even specifically leadership in the church, is a weighty topic. It's We have a complicated relationship with this topic. Sometimes it's complicated uh, simply because of our own personal history. Um, So this week... 
I had a conversation with someone in our church family. She grew up attending a youth group in which she was often corrected by church leaders for minor details. And then as a young woman in her early 20s, leaders at the Christian school she was going to, leaders confronted her for being a distraction to young men at the Christian school she was attending. You can imagine how all of this affected her as a young woman. She told me this week that conversations with Josh Anderson have been healing for her because she sees that his leadership is different than the kind of leadership she experienced in her youth group or at that school she was participating in. She also told us very honestly that to this day it's still very difficult to have any kind of conversation with a pastor or with a church leader because it brings this anxiety which is rooted in years of negative experiences with Christian leaders in the past. When it comes to leadership, for many of us it's complicated just because of our own personal history. Sometimes our relationship with leadership is complicated, furthermore, because of the society that we live in. Uh, Just 20 years ago, not that long ago, Just 20 years ago, in America in general, and in American churches more specifically, we loved our celebrity leaders, didn't we? Right now, however, we live in a cultural moment when there is very, very, very low trust in institutions in general, and very, very, very low trust in leaders in particular. Twenty years ago, people would flock to churches by the thousands in order to hear from famous Christian leadership gurus. Today, however, many of those same people are walking away from churches. And so many of them say they are disillusioned specifically because of the hypocrisy and the abuses of celebrity leaders. You see, the leadership idolatries of yesterday lead directly into leadership distrust today. Some of you are maybe familiar with the smash hit podcast from Christianity Today, which is titled The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. He's paying careful attention to some of these themes, the rise and the fall of personality-driven ministries among American evangelicals. It's a very important topic. I think of our problem kind of like this these days. The problem is that all along we've had our Bibles, and all along our Bibles have included this teaching about what godly leadership should and should not look like. But over time, maybe you could picture almost in the margins of our Bible, so many of us have kind of glued pictures of our favorite Christian leaders. In the margins of our Bibles, we've glued the faces, sometimes smiling, 
Sometimes with the bright lights of a, of a large stage behind him. Sometimes shouting out at crowds. We've glued these images of our favorite Christian teachers into the margins of our Bible so that whenever we read our Bible and whenever we hear God's word speaking about leadership, it sometimes becomes even hard to hear what the Bible itself is saying because we've got all these other pictures, all these other faces glued around the margins. In fact, for some of us, we got so into one teacher or another, or we got so into a certain tribe of teachers that we had so many pictures glued around the edges of our pages or the face of that one leader was so big that it began to crowd out and block out some of the words of Scripture itself. And then in some cases, the faults of those leaders became clear. Maybe at first we instinctively ran to the defense of our favorite celebrity preachers, but a little while later we ended up feeling like fools. We wonder, how could we have been so blind to these faults all along? And now we go back to the pages of Scripture, but we still have these pictures glued around the edges of the pages of those leaders That maybe we regret following years before. And even if we try to take those pictures out of the pages of our Bible, it's not easy. Have you ever tried to detach a picture that is glued to a piece of paper? You know what happens? Even if you try to detach a picture that's glued to a piece of paper, it's kind of messy. It's imprecise and usually something is going to rip. And then it's hard to put the pieces back together again, right? It's really hard for us to get back to hearing what God is actually saying to us. It's really hard to hear His Word speaking because of all of these pictures that we've glued all around our Bibles, right? I bring all of this up and I spend a few minutes talking about it Because as I review my own life story, and as I review my own experience in American evangelicalism, and I come to passages like the passage we're going to read today, and I kind of wince. And I wonder if some of us have kind of an instinctive response to say, ooh, does the Bible have to say things like that? Does the Bible know what the world is really like? I think about our own congregation's history as a part of what some people call the young, restless, and reformed movement. And I would say that our church has been a part of some of these trends. Even though we were just a little church plant in 1998, Those of us who were around in the early days, I was here as a college student. Some of you were here as college students. Some of you were here as adults with younger kids who are now grown and in college. But for those of us who were here in the earlier years, I think we could probably agree that back in those earlier years, we took an unhealthy pride in which leaders we knew. And we had an unhealthy pride about which celebrities came to visit and preach here on Sundays. 
And we took an unhealthy pride maybe in which music we played and which music we didn't play. We took an unhealthy pride sometimes in whose books we promoted and in whose books we didn't promote. And then maybe in ways that are hard to talk about, some of us just kind of got burned badly by the culture of celebrity leadership in churches in such a way that maybe it's hard for us to trust any leaders at all anymore. In his own decades of ministry over in London, John Stott noticed kind of this pendulum swing thing that could happen. On the one side of the pendulum swing is an attitude or an approach to Christian leaders that he described as clericalism. Putting leaders high up on exalted pedestals. And on the other end of this pendulum swing that he observed across the decades is what he called anti-clericalism. Knocking those leaders off that pedestal and smashing whatever is left of the pedestal to begin with. Putting too much confidence in leaders being replaced by too much distrust of all leadership in general. And yet Stott argued that neither of these approaches, putting leaders up on pedestals or distrusting all leaders in general, Stott argued that neither of these approaches quite fits with what the New Testament itself teaches. And so before we even read our text today, I hope you won't mind the longest sermon introduction I think I've ever done. Before we do that, maybe I can give you space for just a moment to kind of take stock in your own heart. To kind of take stock in your own soul. To consider your own history with Christian leaders. The pluses and the minuses. To consider maybe your own experience of Christianity And to consider recently, do you lean more toward the temptation to make too much of leaders? Or recently, do you lean toward the temptation of too easily distrusting leadership in general? We might be wise to pay attention to how our own backgrounds and our own hearts will affect the way that we even hear the words that I'm about to read From Scripture. But with that very long introduction, we're going to listen in this morning to the way that the early church talked about leadership. We're going to pay attention to what the Holy Spirit has seen fit to include in His Word for our instruction, for our strengthening as a church, for our restoration, and for our renewal. Would you listen with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13? God's Word says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. You can see here that our text has two instructions, two directions, two points. 
Point number one, we ask you, brothers, to respect those leaders. And point number two, at the end of verse 13, be at peace among yourselves. I'm going to take more time to talk about the first direction because it's the one that we probably need a little extra help with. And then we'll take just a couple minutes on the second and we'll wrap up with one last note here. The first point that we see here is a challenge to us to cultivate a healthy attitude of Christian respect toward leaders. Now choose those words carefully. A healthy attitude of respect. But this passage does challenge us toward cultivating a healthy attitude of Christian respect toward leaders. Now, what kind of leaders are we talking about here? What kind of leaders? This passage uses three unique descriptions for Christian leaders. Verse 12 describes Christian leaders as, quote, those who labor among you, implying that Christian leadership is not effortless and sometimes it's downright exhausting. Be warned if you intend to get involved in Christian ministry and service. Christian leaders are also described here as those who are, quote, over you in the Lord. Which implies a kind of parental guidance for the congregation. The phrase over you in the Lord sounds like pretty exalted language at first glance. And it certainly does imply a kind of leadership. But we should probably notice that the phrase uh, that Paul uses, this over you language, this over you word is also used in Paul's writings for the way that a parent leads his or her households, the way a dad leads his family. Do you remember maybe back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, The book of Thessalonians described Christian ministry in parental terms, saying that Christian ministry includes this kind of motherly gentleness. Like a mother feeding her newborn child, we lived among you, sharing our very lives, is the way that Christian ministry is described back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, with this motherly gentleness. But also in 1 Thessalonians 2, this what we called a fatherly intentionality. A fatherly intentionality, the way a father sometimes pulls aside a child and says, I know you've been doing things like this, but we need to do it this way instead. And with this combination of parental instincts in ministry in view, probably. This motherly gentleness, this fatherly intentionality, Paul and his missionary team reach for this parental guidance kind of language here once again. We're urging you to respect those who work hard among you. We're urging you to respect those who provide guidance for the congregation the way a parent provides guidance for a family. And there's still another description of Christian leaders here in this passage. Christian leaders are also described as those who admonish you. We'll get into that word admonishing in our message next week. And so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it today. Except to say that it implies something I've experienced before. 
in the Christian life, sometimes other Christian leaders have needed to come and speak to me a word that I didn't want to hear. A word of correction. A word that redirects my thinking and therefore redirects my actions. That's what this word admonishing refers to. It doesn't refer to red-faced screaming at somebody. It refers to a correction, a redirection of thinking that leads to a redirection of living. I've needed that occasionally in my own life. Perhaps some of you have as well. I don't think it's the main mode of Christian ministry, but perhaps it's here for the simple reason that it's one of the harder forms of Christian ministry to receive. And so the missionary team writing to this church plant in Thessalonica says, you know, there are some leaders who work hard among you. You know how there are some leaders who provide parental guidance for the congregation. You know how there are some leaders who sometimes even need to correct you with teaching that redirects your thinking and redirects your actions. We're asking you to respect those kinds of leaders, this passage says. Now, there's an interesting little detail here. It will be interesting maybe to a few of us and not interesting to others. I'll, be a, I'll give you a spoiler alert, but... Interesting little detail, or an interesting little question. Why don't these leaders have another title? You know, very often in the New Testament, Paul refers to church leaders as elders, pastors, shepherds, teachers, overseers. Why don't they get titles here? Why only descriptions of what they do? There might be a historical reason for this. Church plants in the early church would eventually establish elders as local leaders. This was part of Paul's own church planting strategy from the very beginning, according to Acts chapter 14, verse 23, when Paul and Barnabas had planted churches, and then they came back to those churches, and on their second visit, they established elders, one congregation at a time, as they traveled through, right? And so establishing elders or shepherd leaders in congregations was a part of the early church's practice. But remember that here in the city of Thessalonica, where this letter is being written to, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy were only in Thessalonica for about a month or so before they left facing intense persecution. They hadn't yet had time to establish elders in this congregation, I would suggest. And yet these new leaders, and yet in this young church, new leaders are already emerging. They don't have job titles yet. They aren't known as pastors or shepherds or elders or overseers. They don't have job titles, but they're the ones who are doing the hard work in the congregation. They're the ones who are providing direction when direction is needed. They're the ones who show up to have a hard conversation lovingly when a hard conversation is needed. And here's the thing, they don't have special titles, but they're still worthy of respect because of the work they do. Do you see? Why? Because in the church of Jesus Christ, it's not about titles. It's not about getting special letters in front of your name. 
It's not about special offices. It's about serving others to the glory of God. In the Christian church, it's not about titles. It's about serving others with the strength that God's Spirit supplies, with the gifts that God's Son, Jesus Christ, has given to the glory of God's name. And those who labor in this way in any congregation are worthy of a certain kind of respect in Jesus' church. And so, even to an early church plant, presumably with no official pastors, this direction is given. It's good to cultivate a healthy Christian respect for those who are leading. Now, what about the dangers of selfish leadership? Does Paul know? Is the missionary team aware that leadership can go south sometimes? That it can go sideways? That it can get off the rails and hurt people? How can they be so uninformed as to call the church to hold leaders in high esteem and love? What about the problem of selfish leadership? The sad fact is, as I acknowledged earlier, leadership can be abused. And I would add, Paul and his missionary team knew very well that leadership can be abused. The Old Testament prophet Ezekiel warned against the danger of self-centered shepherds who looked out for their own interests without actually caring for God's sheep. And our Lord Jesus, during His ministry, reserved His most intense rebukes for abusive leaders who looked out for their own interests instead of caring for God's sheep. This is why leaders today need to pay careful attention to themselves. An issue that Paul and his missionary team understood full well. In fact, as Paul says in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, when he gathers together the elders or the leaders from the church in Ephesus, his charge to them first and foremost is pay careful attention to yourselves, leaders. And then pay careful attention to the flock. You know, one of the cool things going on this year is we have five elder candidates here in our congregation. Five men who you all have helped to nominate, who are exploring and considering a call to serve as elders. One of our elder candidates, Ken Warman, explains the issue of An elder's responsibility, church leader's accountability like this. He says, ultimately, an elder is accountable to the Lord who has obtained the flock through his own blood. Elders must understand they are accountable to Christ, to each other, and to the whole congregation for their lives, for their teaching, and for their ministry. To pay careful attention to all the flock would require an elder to know the flock and to walk with them in humility. I think our brother Ken has stated that very accurately. 
That's Ken's explanation of Paul's warning in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 30, about the need of Christian leaders to be accountable. In fact, if, if we were preaching this morning from something just a few pages over in our Bibles, if we were looking at 1 Timothy chapter 5 instead of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we would be talking about the fact that Paul, one of the authors of this letter to the Thessalonians, Paul uses some of the strongest language he uses in any of his letters. For what purpose? To demand that elders who are continuing unrepentantly in sin be held accountable by the church. And so, we need to be crystal clear That while we can't expect perfection of our leaders in the church, if we want to be biblical, we must expect a pattern of godliness and humility in our leaders in the body of Christ. I don't want you to miss this, and so I'm going to say it again. And I want to repeat this because I know that some of us here in this congregation have been hurt by leaders who claim to be acting in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and yet whose lives look completely different than Jesus himself. And so I want you to hear this clearly from me. If we read the whole New Testament, we will realize that a healthy attitude of Christian respect does not overlook character concerns for the sake of numeric growth or for the sake of financial gain or for the sake of a leader's reputation. Rather, a healthy attitude of Christian respect for leaders expects leaders themselves to closely Follow Christ in their character, in their conduct, and in their genuine concern for Christ's own sheep. And yet, and yet, when we get to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12, writing to a congregation of Christians... Aware of the possibility of abuses of leadership. What is the direction that the New Testament has for us? It challenges us to cultivate a healthy attitude of respect for Christian leaders who are modeling Christian character. The appeal of the missionary team to the early church is this. We ask you, brothers, to respect your leaders. God takes the danger of bad shepherds very seriously. But our redeeming God does not want us to throw throw the baby out with the bathwater. Our redeeming God looks at something like leadership, which has so often been broken and misused, And he says, instead of discarding leadership, what about redeeming leadership? What about restoring this? 
In fact, in a healthy church in First Thessalonians, like, like what we're reading here in First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12, we are meant to cultivate a healthy respect for leaders. And notice, this respect described in our passage does not mean a mindless allegiance, does not mean a heartless obedience. It's not a simply salute your superiors kind of thing. Rather, it's a healthy respect which grows specifically in the context of Christian love. In fact, that's what the text itself says if we follow to the end of the sentence there in verse 13, right? There's a direction at the beginning of verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect these leaders. What does that mean to respect them? That idea gets unpacked in the first words of verse 13. Not only to respect them, but more specifically, what does that mean? To esteem them very highly in the context of Christian love because of their work. Do you see? It's important to notice the context in which respect is called for. It's called for in the context of loving Christian relationships, not called for no matter what. And so as as we're in this place right now as a congregation, where we are looking forward to hopefully, Lord willing, installing some new elders this year. These five new elder candidates, these leaders among us who the Lord seems to be raising up. I want to take just a moment and say a word specifically to Jason and Michael and Ken and Tom and Travis. And also to our current elders and to any who aspire to leadership in the church. Don't forget That a relationship of love is the only context in which we are meant to be respected. That should provide a safeguard against authoritarian, abusive shepherding, right? Therefore, leaders prioritize people. Leaders prioritize relationships. Leaders prioritize love. Christian ministry is relational from beginning to end. And let me say a word to all of us in light of this here. Let's not forget that despite the real dangers of leadership, which some of us have seen and some of us have felt and some of us have experienced firsthand, despite the real dangers of of leadership, When we consider the leaders that God has placed in our church, maybe the leaders who already have a title of elder, maybe leaders who have no title at all. When we consider those who are leading in ministry in our church, let's not allow failures of other leaders in the past keep us from rightly cultivating a healthy attitude of respect in the context of loving Christian relationships for those leaders God has given us. That brings us to the second point, which I'm going to take very briefly here, but I don't want to just skip over it. This passage calls us, first of all, to cultivate 
to cultivate an attitude of healthy Christian respect for leaders. But this passage also calls us to cultivate a healthy atmosphere of Christian peace throughout the whole body of Christ. You notice how the text works here. Perhaps it's that mention of the context of Christian love in which Christian leadership is supposed to be exercised. But for one reason or another, the missionary team writing to this church plant in Thessalonica, they make this crystal clear in verse 13. We're asking you to respect those leaders who are laboring, who are over you, who are admonishing you. We're asking you to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. But also this, be at peace among yourselves. You see, sometimes we lose track of the goal of Christian leadership. The goal of Christian leadership is not to give platforms to people who like to talk with a microphone. The goal of Christian leadership is to build up the body of Christ to the glory of God. Any other result is less than what God has designed Christian ministry for. And so as we talk about Christian ministry, we need to talk not only about our view of of leaders in our congregation, we also need to talk about our view of the priority of peace throughout the whole body. Now, to be sure, in Romans chapter 12, Paul clarifies There's a direction to be at peace with everybody with this, you know, really real world qualification so far as it depends upon you. There are some times where we do everything we can do realistically to make a bridge of peace with somebody and there's nothing more we can do. But so far as it depends upon you, so far as it depends upon us. God's Spirit through His Word over and over calls us to prioritize not just having a peaceful relationship with one or two of our pals in the church, but to truly cultivate Christian peace throughout the entire body. To make it our aim not only to say, I've got a few people that I know I'm going to feel good seeing on Sunday. But to make it our aim so that there is not one pew in this room where we feel at odds with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Christian leadership doesn't exist to exalt leaders. It exists to build up the unity of the whole body. And maybe it's a tiny bit of a tangent here, but I want to read a quote that we often share in our membership course, a quote about the relationship between Christian leadership and the whole body gathered together. It's a quote that I think is helpful to keep in mind. The quote is from Alexander Strauch in his book, Biblical Elders. Maybe we can get it on the screen here, but it goes like this. The goal of the elders and congregation. So if you're not an elder, this includes you. This is supposed to be our goal, not my goal, our goal, right? The goal of the elders and the congregation should always be to speak and act as a united community. Both leaders and the led 
So therefore, take the time and make the effort needed to work and pray together to achieve this oneness of mind. This means that elders must inoculate themselves against aloofness, secrecy, or independently seeking their own direction. Godly elders desire to involve every member of the body in the joy of living together as the family of God. What will this require of us? This requires a great deal of free and open communication between elders and the congregation. Now, I'm sure we haven't walked that out perfectly, but man, that's a goal I want to grow up into as a congregation, right? Man, that's a goal I want to work for. I want to work toward not just saying, sure, we're at peace. But a goal of saying we're willing to put in the time to talk. We're willing to put in the time to pray together. We're willing to put in the time to work through things together so that it's not just that group over there and that group over there. Or those people who see it this way and those people who see it that way. It's not just those who prefer ministry to look like this and those who like a flavor of ministry that feels like that. But with the end goal that after talking and praying and loving and serving and walking and working together, we really do live together in harmony as the united body of Christ. Loving Him. Following Him, representing Him here in this community and to the ends of the earth. So question, where do we learn to cultivate this unique combination of Christian respect and Christian peace? Where do we learn to cultivate that? We talked earlier about the problem of having too many faces glued to the pages of our Bible. So much so that sometimes God's own heart gets obscured behind all of those other faces. Some of them smiling. Some of them speaking with lights. Some of them screaming. How do we learn to, how do we learn this kind of respect and this kind of peace together? My suggestion is this, we need a new picture to capture our hearts and to draw us back to the mind of Christ. And that new picture we need is nothing less than the picture of Jesus Christ in all his majestic humility. Mark chapter 10 Verse 42 and following tells us that Jesus was well aware of the challenges of leadership in this fallen world, the dangers of leadership in this fallen world. And yet he saw leadership not as something to be discarded, but something to be redeemed. Listen to what Jesus taught. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, church. 
But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must live like a slave of everybody else. For even the Son of Man, this is Jesus' favorite phrase to refer to himself prophetically, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. See, this is our Lord whose spirit is at work among us right now. Left to ourselves, some of us are still looking for another hero to chase after. The next big hit to follow. The next big shiny conference to get to. The next great leader we can align ourselves with. So that we feel like we're something special. Left to ourselves, others of us are just suspicious. Doubtful and skeptical of any and all leaders. And yet when we fix our eyes on Jesus Christ in all of his majestic humility. When we fix our eyes afresh on Jesus Christ who came as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Who came not to be served but to serve others. Who came to give his own life away as a ransom to free others. When we fix our eyes on Jesus, we discover a new and healthier kind of leadership. A new and healthier kind of respect. A new and healthier kind of peace. That we will experience together in the body of the one who came not to be served, but to serve. And my prayer is simply this. More of that, please. More of that. More of that kind of leadership. More of that kind of ambition in life. More of that kind of glory. More of us living our lives, not to be served by others, but more of us living our lives to serve one another. So that more and more clearly through his body, the face of Jesus Christ in all his majestic humility will shine all the brighter. More of that, 